Broadcasting live from Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Women's Telehealth, whose mission is to bring scarce, high-risk maternal fetal medicine services to patients and referring obstetricians in their own community, urban or rural. Visit womenstelehealth.com for more information. Now, here are your hosts, Tanya Mack and C.W. Hall. What is going on, Tanya Mack? Oh, it's a great day. It's a great day just to be here, and we have a great guest, and I'm excited about this topic. Yes, and you know, it's funny because about a year ago, a little little under a year ago, I had the Georgia Dental Hygienists Association in the studio. We were talking about dental deserts in Georgia. And now today we're going to talk about some medical I deserts. was surprised by the extent of the problem. And of course, who who would anticipate that the situation would be, be much better as far as the coverage that we have of, of physicians and, and physician extenders in the rural communities mm-hmm. around Georgia? Yeah. So today our topic, we'll get right into it, is healthcare challenges for rural hospitals. And uh, as a lot of people can just read in the news Rural health care is quite a challenge, and we do, as you said, CW, have some uh, medical deserts. Many states have rural uh, health versus health care problems. Georgia's no different. We have about 108 out of 159 counties defined as rural in Georgia, and a lot of other states are similar. They have one or two city, big city populations, and then health care outside of that can be challenging. So I think most people would agree that healthcare should not be determined by where you live or your zip code. However, some of the healthcare challenges are unique to rural settings because we have community infrastructure issues, poverty, education, transportation challenges. So geographically, Georgia has quite a few medical deserts. We're going to talk about that. There are 54 rural hospitals in Georgia, and they are uh, financially vulnerable as well. So we brought in the expert, one of the experts today in this topic. I'd like to welcome Chris Denson. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Tanya. Glad to be here. Glad you're here. Let me tell you a little bit about Chris. Chris is the Director of Advisory Services for Hometown Health. He has a degree in American politics from Princeton University and a master's in public health from the University of Georgia. He was a former staff member handling aspects of healthcare policy for Senator Saxby Chambliss a while back, and now he works with Hometown Health and focuses in rural healthcare. So welcome, Chris. Why don't we start with just you telling us a little bit about your work in Hometown Health? Absolutely. Uh, Hometown Health is an organization here in the state of Georgia that uh, focuses on the survival of rural hospitals through several ways. Uh, We've been around for close to 20 years now here in the state, and um, We go about uh, trying to preserve rural hospitals through what we consider four different legs. Uh, Our first leg is lobbying and advocacy on behalf of those hospitals. We also do grants both at the federal and the state level for those facilities. Uh, We have Hometown Health University, which is an online education platform which serves about 10,000 students nationwide. And then uh, we also have a, a network of best practice business partner uh, solutions that we offer as well. And and in addition to Georgia, we also um, have uh, several hospitals we assist in in Florida, as well as a a recent grant operation we've just started in Iowa. So um, what started off here in Georgia is trying to help rural hospitals survive in this era of constant change and reimbursement and and cuts from the, the government and 
economic challenges has really begun to expand uh, outside of the state as well. Yeah, I would imagine if you're reaching as far as Iowa, that there are a lot of states, Alabama, Mississippi, just even the southeast that have very similar profiles to Georgia, where they have a couple of metropolitan areas that get the majority of the healthcare assets. And then it's challenging for the areas outside of those metro areas. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, many of the uh, economic challenges that we associate with the the rural population, the rural communities, the rural areas of our state, uh, they feed into the the healthcare delivery system as well. So, so things such as uh, poverty, health issues, uh, you'll you'll see that those really tie into the, um, the economic challenges facing hospitals that we see. Yeah, so let's just dive into kind of the state of the union for rural health in Georgia and have you tell us a little bit about what are some of the top two or three challenges and do you think the demographic is changing at all and kind of how we kind of shore up, kind of give us a scorecard of rural health in Georgia. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, Georgia as a state has just over 10 million people and uh, just uh, roughly 1.8 million of those reside in, in areas designated rural by the state. Uh, as of December 2015, the State Office of Rural Health uh, designated 63 hospitals as rural, and we're actually now at 62 with the uh, closure of North Georgia Medical Center in LJ earlier this year. You know, as, as you travel across the state, you know, I, I just mentioned the, the issues such as poverty, health issues, but really uh, there's also disparities even within the rural areas. Now, for example, you'll see North Georgia, which has issues uh, related to opioids, or South Georgia, which will have you know issues more, uh, you'll see diabetes, strokes, uh, issues such as that more prevalent. And, and so while there is the, I actually heard one, one hospital executive refer to it as the state of Atlanta and everything else one mm-hmm. time. So while there is, while there is that in play, uh, there are also differences and, and, and certainly health and economic discrepancies within the rural areas themselves. Yeah, I know we see, I know what you're saying. We all have issues of poverty in there, but it's really market specific. Some of the local healthcare challenges. I know uh, we talked earlier off air about the 18 health districts that we have in DCH and this one has a higher HIV population. That one has mm-hmm. a pro- opioid problem. So you have to kind of be able to deliver some of the basics, all the basics, um, but specifically what different communities may need to handle their particular problems might be somewhat different also. So I hear what you're saying. And and one, I, I mentioned this, not uh, necessarily a health issue, but you know the majority, overwhelming majority of rural communities are older populations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on average, uh, I believe I, I saw a study recently that said on average, our rural residents earn uh, about $8,000 less than urban mm-hmm. and metropolitan residents. So it's a poor, older demographic. And then, of course, the health issues that come with that. Do you see the demographic changing? You've been now working in rural health care for a while. Um, do, have you seen changes just in the last few years or are there trends that are kind of coming up that you guys are keeping an eye on? Uh, yes, actually, it's trending more towards an even older population, wow, okay. surprisingly. Uh, and you know, if if you've if anyone's been following the uh, the, the political situation this year, they know that uh, trade and economics are obviously a big topic of of national discussion on both sides of the aisle. Well, you know, when we travel the state, we see uh, industries that are that are you know that were once there that are not there anymore. Mm-hmm. And so obviously those job opportunities are important to bringing in new residents, um, keeping residents in those communities. And uh, as we as we see the 
the workforce and work opportunities disappear, these these um, areas are actually skewering even older based on some some recent studies that I've mm-hmm. seen, as well as, you know, just anecdotal traveling around the state. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of trending with how America's trending. We're trending with the state. We're all getting older. Baby boomers are um, kind of moving along here and taxing the system and adding to the system both simultaneously. Let's take a little bit deeper dive into some of the specific issues that rural hospitals are dealing with. Um, The first one I'd like to start with is actually some of the reimbursement challenges that rural hospitals face. And I'd like you to kind of just educate the the, uh, audience a little bit about critical care access hospitals versus not critical care access hospitals. Absolutely. Um, so half of those rural hospitals um, are designated critical access. And that was a designation that uh, came about in the mid-90s. And it was really intended to provide a, an emergency level of care um, for our you know, rural communities. But it was, you know, there's there's not tertiary level in, of skill involved here, mm-hmm. but it's mostly a, a stabilizing access point. Those are those facilities are reimbursed at cost. Uh, the other half of those um, hospitals in our rural communities are designated uh, as PPS, which which is a different payment system. And um, I, unfortunately, I, I don't think I have enough time on here today to to delve into all the differences mm-hmm. between the two. Uh, for this audience, but mm-hmm. but I will say that uh, you know, in, in as an overall picture, when it comes to reimbursement for our, our rural hospitals, which is probably one of the the big three things that affecting their their economic uh, situation today, eighty five percent of payments that our hospitals receive come from a a government paying source uh, that it consists of Medicare, which pays ninety eight cents on the dollar for services rendered. Medicaid uh, through the state, which pays uh, 85.6 cents on the dollar for services rendered. And then our self-pay uh, demographic, which is uh, folks without insurance who um, you know come to the hospital. And really our hospitals rely on uh, what is known as uh, DISH payments, and DISH stands for disproportionate share, to offset the loss of paying uh, patient, offset the loss of treating patients that are not covered by insurance. So Really, what you're seeing is a huge or a disproportionate allocation of resources go to pay the hospital or less than cost to treat the patient. Kind of some scary stuff. Um, so really, it's the job of these rural hospitals to try to keep everything in balance then. Because they're, you, sometimes you don't know what's walking in the door. You have to have the services available, but they may, are they predictable to some degree? Or probably I would guess some are predictable and some aren't as far as service lines um, and just trying to make it all work on a pretty slim margin. Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head with slim margin. Mm-hmm. Uh, most hospitals, um, when we travel the state, you know, we, we do a lot of um uh, advisory services in terms of, uh, you know, payer, what is known as the payer mix, what I was just discussing with Medicare, Medicaid, commercial payers, uh, self-pay. And most hospitals will start off by knowing just based purely on the demographics of the area and the services they will offer uh, combined with the payers that they are going to be, um, just from an operation standpoint, performing at a negative margin. Mm-hmm. So every little bit 
that adds to the revenue or adds to a better reimbursement or an allowable or whatever is critical. Absolutely. That's why why things such as the disproportionate share payment mm-hmm. um, are, are lifelines, really. Uh, when you're when you're dealing with communities where there may be a prevalence of uninsured patients that are that are utilizing the system, it is of the utmost importance that every every funding uh, mechanism is there and readily available to offset the loss that will be accrued just from standard operating uh, mm-hmm. performance. I hear you. So in the healthcare community in general, a lot of people are talking, uh, November's coming, about MACRA and the Medicare changes that are coming. Will these affect, do you think, hospitals at all, or is it a different reimbursement system? How do you, how do what we hear, uh, we're all waiting for the rules for MACRA to kind of be more defined, but will that affect our rural hospitals at all? I'm glad you pointed out that we're still waiting on the rules to come out. Right. Um, my, no, they're not going to get delayed. It's government, so it is going to be, you know, a wild card there. We got that. My initial reaction to reading about macro is that it was me. Uh, my opinion is that it's going to be very similar to what we experience with the EHR requirements mm-hmm. uh, in terms of how physicians deal with those. We'll see um, some physicians that will embrace it. We'll see some that will do the bare minimum needed to get by. We'll see some that will say, you know, I've had a good run as a doctor. I don't need this. I'm going to retire. And then you'll see some that will just flat out say, um, you know, I'm not going to do it. They can assess me a penalty as they see fit. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a moving target. Whatever rules come out will probably be amended over time as we get the unintended consequences once they're kind of stood up and people have to figure out a way to adapt. Well, let's move on to another challenge that exists with, we talked about some of the big three. The next one I'd like to move to as far as challenges to our rural hospitals is the issue of access. So um, can you just talk a little bit about problems with access? And I know it seems like the most glaringly obvious to me is we do have some primary care providers, but it's really the specialists and subspecialists that's often lacking in a rural care setting. Yes. And, um, you know, there was a a study that was put out by the Georgia Board for Physician Workforce a couple of years ago. And really some of the statistics they they put forth are are striking in terms of what people may encounter here in in Atlanta or the, you know, metro area in general. We have six counties in the state that do not even have a family medicine physician. So no primary care. No primary care. (laughs) Uh, 31 of those do not have uh, an internal medicine physician, 63 without a pediatrician, 79 of our counties do not have an OBGYN, and 66 are without a general surgeon. And uh, when, when you think about Georgia from a geographic standpoint, that's a pretty pretty large swath of the state that is without uh, what, what many inside the perimeter and, and on the fringes 285 will consider pretty basic access so to CW, care. Here begins our conversation, CW, of the medical deserts. Can you talk a little bit about, are there sections of the state? Off air, we were talking about the southwest part of Georgia is really kind of no man's land in terms of some of the specialties. Where, what are some other kind of general parts of the state that are really under, you know, having the specialists available? Yes, there is a... Um, well, I know. I think we'll discuss this a little bit later. But when the governor appointed his rural hospital stabilization committee, the Department of Community Health, the State Office of Rural Health, put together a a map of access points mm-hmm. across the state. This included hospitals, federally qualified health centers, uh, other other forms of community health center, uh, other points of access, and uh, 
you know, really that area down in the southwest corner of the state is is a, uh, as you said, a medical desert. Mm-hmm. That's just the best way to sum it up. Along with the area uh, south of I-20 mm-hmm. and north of Savannah, kind of that mm-hmm. um, central eastern quadrant of the state, mm-hmm. uh, south of Augusta as well. When you look at the map and the access points that our citizens have, uh, they're really lacking. And it obviously makes uh, accessing healthcare, whether it be primary, tertiary, uh, very difficult. And uh, it's just an, a, another challenge when, you know, when combined with, of course, the demographics and as we discussed, the poverty, it, 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 it paints a pretty striking picture uh, in terms uh, across the state of what certain areas the state have to deal with in terms of medical access. Mm-hmm. And um, do you see, you certainly told us by the numbers like OBGYN, for example, at 79 counties that don't have any OBGYN provider in their county might be one of the um, kind of more utilized specialties that don't have access. Are there others? Like what about behavioral health or what about, you know, CW brought up dental health. What do you see as some of the biggest gap specialties? We, we definitely have uh, an issue with serving our behavioral health um, patients across the state. A lot of times they will, they will end up in the emergency rooms of our hospitals as almost an act of last resort. Mm-hmm. And you'll see, uh, for example, uh, you know, our, our emergency rooms are not equipped to deal with those patients. So it's imp- as important as, as possible to, to get them out into our, our you know, the, the, the mental health system we have set up across the state and get them transferred to the correct access point because we, you know, traveling the state, you know, we, we hear the story almost everyone we go to of the, the mental health patient that is uh, put into a room, even sometimes the room that is padded, uh, specifically equipped to handle the mental health patient. And, you know, they're tearing the wall, they're shutting the door off the wall, they're assaulting police officers that are stationed there to guard them. So, so we, we definitely see a, a mental health issue across the state. And um, that, that's definitely a, a big one in terms of finding uh, access and the right source of care for those patients. Um, you mentioned the dental access. Yes. Uh, you know, we actually, uh, earlier this year, I was taking a trip uh, through our hospitals in uh, Southwest Georgia and was talking with a hospital CEO down there. And she mentioned to me that they had to bring in a pediatric oral surgeon. Full disclaimer, I'd never, I was unaware of the existence of pediatric Mm -hmm. oral surgeons prior to that. And she said we had to bring it in because we had a need because uh, we have mothers down here that are just um, unaware of of basic uh, kind of, you know, healthcare hygiene. hygiene. Yes. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Thank you, Tanya. And they put sweet tea in the child's sippy cup. Wow. And we have one and two-year-olds that- With rotten teeth. Rotten teeth. The new, rotten new teeth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've heard uh, we in my business also work in Albany, Georgia, and some of the rural areas out there. And uh, you do bring home a good point. It is sometimes we think of specialty care, but sometimes it is just the very basic, basic things that need educated that would get a long way in just the prevention part of not getting to problems as severe as what you just mentioned. So I appreciate that. Um, Let's move along and talk about one of the third big challenges you have when we talk about rural healthcare issues, and that is what is happening in the legislature to help support or not support kind of what is uh, available in terms of access and reimbursement. So that's kind of like the third leg uh, or kind of the underbelly 
of um, policy. So can you kind of give us an update on what's happening in the legislature regarding rural health? Yeah, and uh, as a great segue from our last point, uh, earlier this year, the state funded 72 residency slots uh, for additional physicians to help solve the shortage problem we've seen across the state. And uh, there was a special focus within that in terms of rural area to, uh, to address that, that underserved population. And uh, as well, you know, there are also incentives to, to attract our you know, physicians to come out to the rural areas as well. That was an additional 72 that they, they, they added? They funded mm-hmm, earlier this year, 72 residency slots. Across all of the uh, pro- medical schools we have in Georgia? I believe, yes, exactly. Okay. And uh, just under $15 million, I believe, w- went towards that. Oh, that's great. Because I know that was one of the big backlogs in terms of being able to get some of those re- rural areas served. Because I think that one of the big groups that is often available for that population are the J-1B visa uh, foreign-born medical graduates. Mm-hmm. Part of their arrangement can be if you'll serve for a period of time, and then obviously many of those people that serve end up staying there. That's what I was going to ask is, as part of these programs, was there any, because I'm just hearing about it for the first time, was there any condition that part of their training program would be spent actually in a rural community? Yes. I mean, because I, you know there are studies that show right. that doctors are much more likely to stay in the community in which they perform their residency. Right. Yeah. So while a critical access hospital may not have the financial resources in place to, to keep up a residency have a program. Resident, but we're we're focusing more on getting more to those cities like like Augusta, right. Athens that are just outside of the rural areas okay. to to help uh, solve that issue. Okay, so that's Albany. good news. So we got some legislative funding to solve the doctor shortage. And then we also uh, two years ago the the governor announced the formation of the Rural Hospital Stabilization Committee. My CEO Jimmy Lewis serves on that committee. And what that was intended to do was to provide financial resources to rural hospitals in order to establish programs and service lines that would work in order to, that we can then take and apply to the system as a whole. It was not meant as just a blank check, direct capital infusion of the hospital, but rather a funding mechanism to provide uh, resources into the hospitals. Were they also funding like models, like trying an innovative model that could then be scaled somewhere else in the system? Exactly. That's exactly what they did. And the hospitals were given the ability to determine those projects. Mm-hmm. For their community. For those for their communities. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just completed phase one mm-hmm. a few months ago, and, and those were four uh, hospitals of, of you know different geographic uh, proximity throughout the state. That was Appling uh, Hospital in Baxley, Georgia, Emanuel in Swainsboro, Crisp Regional in Cordell, and Union General in Blairsville. And that was the phase one project. And it just wrapped up. And with the uh, legislative session coming up here in January, we, we should have a report uh, that will go forth on the, on, on the, the findings they have and, and what can be, be done and applied uh, throughout the state. And what do you anticipate would be phase two, or are you kind of getting some preliminary feedback, just kind of what happened? Well, uh, a few months ago, they actually announced the phase two okay. pilot hospitals, and those with the same criteria of different uh, geographic locations throughout the state. Mm-hmm. That was uh, Upson Regional in Thomaston, Georgia, Habersham Medical Center up in Demarest, and Miller County in the southwest corner of the state in uh, Colquitt, Georgia. Okay. And were the criteria the same from group one and group two? 
Yes, yes. Okay, so it's just kind of geographical expansion and probably they'll try some new things I would get from the learnings that they had from phase one. Exactly. The the phase one feedback is important. The phase one report is not finalized yet. So um, taking what we knew from phase one and then applying to phase two, but but this still um, this is still an ongoing project. You know, some of these things have various uh, return on outcomes. And so, but but I will state this that since there was a state funding portion that that every every project was meticulously uh, examined, every T crossed and every I dotted because when you know state funds are involved, it's as important that you have uh, that, that transparency, not only to the taxpayer but to show what we can do moving yeah, forward to and help accountability accountability to help and and you know solutions to help maintain uh, our rural hospital infrastructure. Okay. Um, So you've talked a little bit about the rural stabilization grants. It sounds like uh, we've gotten some good preliminary traction and it's going to be ongoing for a little while. And probably when phase two ends, you'll have even more um, of an idea of what's working, what's not working as you try new programs. And um, we kind of spread out into different parts of the state. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the uh, rural hospital tax credit. Yes, uh, that was a piece of legislation that was passed earlier this year. Uh, the original sponsor was State Representative uh, Jeff Duncan from Cumming. And, um, you know, it, it's really a, a tribute to him. You sh- he has a pretty incredible story of how he arrived there. Uh, you know, he says he was sitting in church one day and the Lord Lord struck him with inspiration. So it's, it's truly worth hearing him describe the story in, in, in person. But the the intention of the Rural Hospital Tax Credit is for local communities to provide uh, an infusion of capital with their tax dollars to support their facility. Uh, year one will go into effect 2017. The State Department of Community Health is currently finalizing the rules and regulations regarding donations for this program. But over the next three years, we're looking to see a total infusion of $180 million into our uh, qualified hospitals throughout the state. Mm-hmm. So the idea of it is similar to the film industry to Georgia. There's a big tax credit base here. Gee, if you come, there'll be some incentives for you. Only we're applying that methodology to healthcare in yeah. our rural settings. Mm-hmm. Film industry, and I believe there's a similar program too uh, regarding the private schools, okay. where um, people are allowed to donate to it. And, and it's a lot of the, the the model of the rural hospital tax credits based okay. on it as well. Okay, so that should help with tax. Yeah, that's, decreasing. A, that's a good way to describe it. That's yeah, and a, also it's a tax credit, mm-hmm. not a, so it's t- coming right off the, the bottom. So you, it's not a tax benefit or tax deduction. It's actually a tax credit, which is handled much differently. Absolutely, and uh, you know it, it's twenty five hundred dollars for an individual, uh, five thousand for a married couple. Corporations are able to donate uh, up to not exceeding a portion of their state tax liability. Mm-hmm. And the one other uh, mechanism, I guess, in place is that with each hospital has a cap of $4 million they can receive in these tax credits. And then $2 million of that is slated to come from the individual married side and $2 million slated to come from the corporation side. So just out of curiosity, and you may not know, I'm just going to ask the question because this is new to me. How, I'm just thinking of, different companies. A girlfriend of mine moved her company from California to Vidalia, in part because of the tax credits that the state gave her. But I'm trying to think of how do we begin to market that these credits are available to businesses that might be willing for quality of life or economic reasons or whatever to relocate 
um, from like the Atlanta area out far enough to get those credits. Is there a way that business owners are being educated about this tax credit? Yes, and I'll, I will say that the the State Department of Community Health is is currently you know finalizing the some of the rules and regulations regarding this program, and uh, you know as an organization we are working closely with them to help educate and, and distribute edu- uh, materials as needed uh, among our hospital members to keep them informed as that information comes out in real time. Okay, very good. Anything else that you'd like to add, Chris, about uh, legislatively what's happening in Georgia? I think we've hit the two big ones. No, I think uh, I think those those sum up oh, pretty well. Good. Another topic I'd like to talk about, and we talked about this before we went on air, was just the um, gap that has occurred in many parts, but maybe hit rural areas, maybe worse than others, where the intention of Obamacare plans and the affordability for uninsured um, patients, Georgians, you know, whomever across molten America, really, there has been a gap of what was intended. Um, versus people that just can't afford those, so they've remained uninsured. How have you seen ACA and the patient population in the rural areas be affected by the ACA rule? Well, obviously, uh, since the introduction of the ACA, uh, I believe that you know, for the most part, most people have seen a rise in their deductible. Uh, we are seeing uh, a term that is really, I think, taking um, added meaning in the last few years is uh, underinsured. So they may have insurance, but their deductible is so high that they they wouldn't qualify for really for the basic services. They come in there looking to uh, looking to uh, procure from the hospital. That that has been a big one, and uh, and unfortunately, you know, it it's a it's a obviously a situation that really affects families when they're looking to get medical services, but it also affects the hospital as well. So it's it's a it's really a double edged sword in terms of these communities and dealing with that. Uh, another thing as well is that the Affordable Care Act also required the hospitals, physicians to upgrade to electronic health records. We are seeing, uh, you know, we had we had several stages of meaningful use money that was funded directly into the facilities, and now that money has may or may not have been used to fund uh, electronic health records. <laughs> I was just reading this morning an article about is EHR or is meaningful use going to go by the wayside because people have elected just penalize me or I'm going to retire and not deal with it. There's been a whole variety, just like uh, we were talking about the ACA, what we thought would happen and the unintended consequences. Same things with the meaningful use and the EHR. So we have to communicate, but the bottom line is people have not jumped on the bandwagon as expected. Right, and that was that was an additional infusion of capital uh, towards the hospitals that is going away as mm-hmm. well now that the meaningful use uh, process is over. Yeah, and so that's something they're having to deal with too. I will say there is uh, there is a, a book out there called Reinventing American Healthcare that was written by Ezekiel Emanuel, uh, brother of Rahm Emanuel, former White House Chief of Staff. And he was the the architect of the Affordable Care Act. Right there in, in print, it, it says one of the objectives of, of the Affordable Care Act is to close a uh, thousand hospitals by the year 2020. You know, if you if you look across the nation and you read at uh, you know not just Georgia, even though we've had our fair share, if you look across the nation, there are several facilities that are forced to close through the economic pressures, both internally of an operation standpoint, maybe externally from the community, the demographics that uh, it, it's really creating a, a tough situation for, for hospitals uh, right now as they, as they struggle to adjust to this uh, post-Affordable Care Act 
of yeah. life. I can appreciate your comments too about the underinsured because I'm thinking it's a double-edged sword here in Atlanta. One of the things that we see when you're in a big metro area is because it's kind of like old time. I remember when I was a kid, my parents would have to pay out of pocket to go to the doctor. But if anybody went to the hospital, they had coverage for catastrophic type of things. So we're kind of back to that with these high deductibles. You're just writing checks and paying out of your pocket. And then you might have some insurance for catastrophic things. Well, when you're in a city like Atlanta, you become a very good consumer shopper, which is actually driving prices down. Because now I'm going to, if I'm writing the check and not the carrier, I'm going to be shopping for price transparency and exactly what it will cost me. But when you're in a rural area, you don't have the same choices. Captive audience. Yes. So kind of a good on one hand, horrible on the other hand kind of idea. We talked a little bit earlier about just one of the challenges with dealing with uh, the rural healthcare situation is not only the government and the access and the reimbursement, but actually the healthcare resources. And you told us a little bit about the, the increased funding for residencies in Georgia and the doctor shortage, but what's kind of happening with the ancillary services? Because we're facing a nursing shortage where, I mean, it's we're just kind of ancillary service providers in general. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we we are seeing that across the state. We're seeing, you know, obviously areas where as uh, hospitals close or there are ownership management changes, uh, there are almost like um, recruiting wars for, for these ancillary providers. Yeah. And so it probably, you know, not what I anticipated uh, would have would have happened. But it has, uh, you know, obviously unintended consequences that have come out. And especially as we, we try to address these shortage gaps uh, in the in the uh, the work, the workforce. Is the, are the nursing schools looking at the same kind of things as the residency programs like Emory's nurse? I mean, we have a lot of good nursing programs across the state, too. Uh, that I'm not sure of. OK. All right. Um, so hopefully somebody's looking at that. Um, let's move on and talk a little bit about, we've talked a lot about the negative aspects of the challenges that rural healthcare is facing, but sometimes when you have a negative, uh, kind of situation you're dealing with, there are innovations that you have to come up with to kind of work around them. So I know in my business, which is telemedicine, uh, Georgia has actually become one of the model states in the country because they've kind of been forced to find a way to share resources out in the rural areas. Um, but can you talk a little bit about the opportunities? Like what are some of the technologies you're seeing? Your your whole organization is set up to really uh, encourage collaborative efforts between strategic partners. What's just kind of a, a handful of things that you're seeing out there that's positive as a result of fixing the challenges we have? Well, you mentioned telemedicine, and that is going to be a critical to addressing the uh, service line gaps that we're starting to see in terms of uh, physician shortages, but also making sure that our, our population in the rural area is equipped to, you know, um, to get the care they deserve. And so that is that is one of the true real success stories. I know that several of the phase one hospitals invested in telemedicine and seeing their success stories, you know, they talk about changing the minds and attitudes of uh, people in their community and bring them on board with that. Uh, you know, we're, we're hearing that, you know, it's not ever, you know, especially, you know, we're seeing telemedicine in schools mm -hmm. and kids love telemedicine. They, they love the concept of seeing the doctor on the television screen. We uh, see that in yeah. our office too. We do obstetrics. And one of our funnest things is they'll have the whole family 
listening to the results of the ultrasound and the kids will see the TV talking back to them and immediately get engaged in the conversation. Um, so this bi-directional way to communicate has a lot of broad applications, I think, across all the specialties. Yeah, absolutely. And and so that has been one of the, the true success stories. Uh, you know, we're seeing as well that um, ambulances can become almost like mobile ERs, that there's been money fund uh, directed to the Rural Hospital Stabilization Committee for that. And, you know, almost like a, a mobile triage unit to mm-hmm, stabilize like iPads patients. in the ambulance. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so that ability is crucial in, uh, in, in the rural settings as well, especially when you have a, a much broader uh, geographic landscape without that immediate access to a facility to stabilize. Mm-hmm. And I know that, uh, for example, some of our partners, we share Georgia Partnership for Telehealth, yes. has included not only the iPads in the ambulance back to the base station, but also through telemedicine back to specialists that aren't even at the hospital in the community. So it's kind of a two-way win that they can communicate a critical situation to their community hospital and simultaneously pull in long-distance specialists when they need them in the field. So I think that is a, a good example of a big win. What are you seeing anything with home monitoring out there, like telemedicine being used for, because I know uh, healthcare dollars always involve the big diseases, you know, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, and we're able to do so much with technology, not just in the hospital setting, but in the community at large. Yeah, you know, one of the the big buzzwords, uh, obviously, with this post-Affordable Care Act world is uh, patient-centered medical home. Mm-hmm. So we're, we are seeing some some initiatives towards that. But I will say one one thing that, that ties into this, along with also from the Rural Hospital Stabilization Committee, is we are seeing, uh, you know, across the state, we have an issue with, with frequent flyers in mm-hmm. the emergency room. Mm-hmm. Uh, people that may not necessarily need emergency care, but come there. Maybe they don't have a meal. Mm-hmm. It's too cold in the wintertime, too hot, and there's no AC in the summertime. They may just want to see, hey, say hey to their favorite nurse. Mm-hmm. And so we have seen hospitals really being proactive and doing more of a population health management mm-hmm. with these uh, these patients. And they can, you know, they can take a uh, like a Ford Explorer, for example, and uh, call it an ambulance and go out there and swing by, deliver a meal, and uh, you know just say hey check in on these, these patients that, and, and keep them out of the ER mm-hmm. where, you know, is not the, the correct access point mm-hmm. in the healthcare system yeah, for them to be. Keeping the most appropriate level of care. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and resource management. And, you know, that, and that's probably one of those ideas where from a, a, you know, a pure bottom line standpoint, you know, you're, you, you would initially wonder why, but when you are able to keep them out of the most expensive part of your hospital mm-hmm. and you're providing a community good, uh, it it really I think pays off in the long term, and we're really starting to see some some success and some some really positive results uh, in terms of those initiatives. That's encouraging. So um, I know that the use of telemedicine and school based health programs and uh, that kind of thing. Georgia ha- is Georgia actually becoming one of the models in the country for how we're coping compared to as you explore other states. What how do we compare? Absolutely, I, I think that Georgia, in terms of both at the state level at a, a private partnership level is really being uh, proactive and one of the leaders when it comes I to agree, telehealth. I would agree with that. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about what's coming up. So we've talked a little bit about the stabilization grants and new resources and tax credits and that kind of thing. But is there something in particular that you're excited about 
that's different that we're doing or as a trend that you see that you feel very positively about dealing with the challenges of rural hospitals? Well, you know, I, I think one of the high water marks going forward, we're going to see, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing communities rally around their facilities. Mm-hmm. We, we haven't, we discussed a little bit, you know, on the economic challenges facing them, but it's important to realize that most often these rural hospitals are one of the top two employers in their county. These are, uh, you know, both high, uh, high trained, high paying jobs, but they also uh, support a lot of auxiliary services uh, and, and positions in the county as well. So, it, and, and you know, what we hear too, traveling all over the state, and it doesn't matter if you're in Fort Oglethorpe or you're in Folkestone, you hear when, jo- uh, excuse me, corporations, businesses are looking to relocate. Do you have, you know, they check, they want to know about the schools, mm-hmm. they want to know about the healthcare, healthcare. system. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and, I, and I'll say this too, uh, you know, we have, we have visited the communities recently that have seen their hospitals shut down in the last 10 years. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, if you were to go to Lower Oconee down in Glenwood, which which closed back in February of 2014, and you ask that mayor, you know, what is the impact on your community? He'd say it's devastating. Stuart Webster down in uh, Richland, Georgia, their mayor uh, has been on record. You know, they had uh, three businesses and a grocery store shut down in close proximity to the hospital. So it, it is an economic wave, and it's it's tough, if not outright impossible, to bring back the the economic um, progress mm-hmm. when the hospital shuts down. Mm-hmm. We also have some good examples. I'm thinking of one Archibald Hospital down in Thomasville is a good example where I think the community has really put in resources and rallied around and really created a great system um, down in that area, a kind of our plantation row down there of. Uh, people really don't have to travel that much out. They really have become very innovative. They've used technology. They've engaged the community and kind of rallied around to have a great delivery system down there. Absolutely. And, you know, it's not just Thomasville. They also uh, own and support the, the three surrounding critical access hospitals in Brooks, Grady, and Mitchell County. But, you know, that is a, you're exactly right. Out there on the state line, uh, Archibald is an example of a system that is progressive and, and doing a lot to make sure that you can get uh, first-rate health care outside of the metro area. Very good. So progress can be made. That's the bottom line. So um, time has passed rather quickly, Chris. We're at the end of the show. I know it's hard to believe. CW, this is so important, an important topic for all of us uh, here today. And I think Georgia's just one example of many, many states that have the same kind of issues and footprint across the country. So hopefully we can get the word out and share this information with your family and friends in other states as well, some of the progressive things that we're doing here. So Chris, I'd like to thank you for being here today. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it and appreciate the opportunity to talk a little bit about the the situation facing rural hospitals in the state of Georgia. Sounds great. And since you and Hometown Health are um, critical to our critical access healthcare system, why don't you tell the audience how they could reach you if they want to reach you or have more questions? Yes, uh, you can find out more information related to Hometown Health at our website, www.hometownhealthonline.com. If you have any questions for me regarding today's uh, discussion, my office number is 706 Eight five zero one seven zero nine. All right. Thanks for being with us. Thanks. And CW, we're done already. That's hard to believe. <laughs> but if you want more information about the 
high risk maternal fetal specialty care services that you can receive via telemedicine with women's telehealth. You go to womenstelehealth.com. Make sure you go check them out. And if you've not done so already, go to the upper left-hand corner of the show page. That'll see the Apple logo there. Takes you to the Top Docs Radio Show podcast on iTunes, and you can subscribe to us. That way, each week when the new episode comes out, it's downloaded straight to your device. You can check it out when it's convenient for you. And we hope you turn around and share this information. Put it out on LinkedIn. Put it out on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media platforms that you're on. You may just be putting some information in the hands of somebody that means something to you that makes a big difference in their life. So we'll say thanks in advance to all the folks that turn around and share this for us. And uh, it's a real treat to have you in the studio with us today. Thank you very much, CW. Appreciate it. Budding, budding uh, career going in, in radio with a voice like that. We'll have to have him back just for <laughs> his will. voice. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, it was a treat having you in the studio again today, Tanya. Look forward to catching up with you in a couple. All right. Have a good afternoon, everybody. We'll see you. Bye. 